Welcome to the Business That Matters Spotlight. I'm Warren Coughlin, founder of this podcast and business coach to ethical entrepreneurs who want to build a business that matters. In short, I help you end chaos and gain control over your business so that you predictably and reliably achieve the profits, the lifestyle, and the impact you strive for through a team you can trust without the stress and frustration. When you experience this, you're more confidently able to make the world or just your corner of it a bit of a better place. At The Spotlight, we believe that every entrepreneur has a unique message that can positively impact the world and inspire others to do the same. Stick around to the end of the show. We'll reveal how you can be our next guest. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Business That Matters Spotlight. My name is Warren Coughlin. I'm the host. I am super excited about our guest today. Um, it's going to be a really, really interesting and wide-ranging conversation, I assume. My guest is Stephen Hoffman. He is the founder of Founderspace, which is a global startup accelerator and incubator based in San Francisco, but with operations all over the world, which he will tell us more about. Um, and it's such a great story because it started with just wanting to help friends and help some local entrepreneurs and now has become a major force for positive social change with a real focus on helping entrepreneurs who want to make a difference in the world. And Steve has some amazing lessons to share with us. And he's also just uh, had a book published called Surviving a Startup. So there's probably some great lessons in there. So welcome to the pot. Welcome to the spotlight. Warren, it's fantastic to be here. I'm so glad to have you. I think we could probably talk for hours, but we'll try to keep it. We'll try to keep it focused to make good respect of your time. So tell tell me a little bit about how this all started. You know, Founder Space is such a, an interesting influence, but it started from you know fairly humble origins. It started really with me being an entrepreneur. So I did three venture funded companies and two bootstrap companies in Silicon Valley. So I know what it's like to be an entrepreneur. I know what it's like to be in the trenches and facing those problems. And were and they in different sectors or were they all sort of around a particular? They were focus? all involving technology and all of them had actually a cross with entertainment. So online entertainment, whether it was gaming, video, that my background actually is in technology. I have an electrical computer engineering degree from the University of California and a master's in film and television from USC. So I've always really? been, yes, I've always been at this intersection of entertainment and technology. Did you ever do any uh, film or television? I'm an I old did. actor and theater director myself. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> I, yeah, yes. After film school, I actually worked my way up to a TV development executive in Hollywood for a big TV production company, did a lot of work there. But then I saw the future. I thought the future is really going to involve interactive entertainment because I am a gamer. My, actually, my nickname in Silicon Valley, Captain Hoff, is my gamer handle. And I jumped ship from Hollywood to Japan. And at that time, Sega was the number one video game company. I went to work for them coming up with new ideas. I remember Sega very well. Interesting. Yes. Our, our, our histories track a little bit. I, I used to be a lawyer, but I left that. And I was an actor, a theater director at the same time. But I left that to start a, uh, a business in the new media space. And I was actually one of the founders of the Canadian New Media Awards oh, back in the it. late 1990s. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah, we have parallel backgrounds. <laughs> And so then, so but what made, was it just seeing the future? Like film and television seems like such a focused area. What, what made you go, I'm going to leave this cultural thing and go into this whole crazy new area that was emerging? I think it was my passion for games. 
So I was a total gamer. I was also really into film, but equally into games. And in the film industry, you know, I wanted to write and direct, but Hollywood, you know, it's hard to break into writing and directing. So I was more of an executive in the studio, green lighting projects, searching for the next projects. I wasn't actually creating. And then I got a chance. I met the founder of Sega. He was the chairman at the time of the company. And he said, come to Japan. We want your ideas. We are creating, you know, lots of games. They are doing virtual fighter, virtual racer, Sonic the Hedgehog, all these things. So I just took the opportunity. And once I got into that interactive entertainment, uh, I moved back to Silicon Valley, start launched my first startup. And so then you, so you, you did the, and sorry, actually in, in your story, I'd actually like to unpack a couple things for uh, young entrepreneurs that might be listening. I mean, you talked about both venture back and bootstrap. How would you compare those experiences? They are both fantastic experiences, very different. So my mm-hmm. first startup was bootstrapped. I basically came back from Japan. I'd been working in games, you know, coming up with concepts for all these new projects. And I wanted to launch my own. Luckily, I could code because I have an engineering degree. So I literally uh, created that first project. I pulled in some artists. I did a lot of the animations myself. Ironically, the first project is was called Gazillionaire. So it was all it was teaching entrepreneurs how it was teaching people how to be entrepreneurs. It was basically what I do today, but in game format. And that game, that game just took off in a huge way. We got, we got published by the top PC game publisher at the time, Microprose Spectrum Holobyte went everywhere. And it was a, it was a great first venture. And then we launched a series of these business simulation games where you're entrepreneurs and running companies. And after that, then I dived into the internet, did a venture, did three venture back startups and then segued into founder space. And so, but what was the experience? Like, if you said like starting with starting the bootstrap, doing the venture backed, I mean, there's, there's pros and cons to each, right? On the venture back, you got accountability to others on the bootstrap. You don't have access to as much capital, It is funny. So when I was doing the bootstrap, I was always envious of people getting venture funding because I was like, oh, if only I had more money, if only I had more money, I could make this this project so much bigger, so much better. But when you're doing a bootstrapped company, you have complete control. It is literally, you don't have to deal with a lot of other people. It was my project. I could do whatever I wanted. And a lot of that reflected in the project. It was a very different type of project. Like that gazillionaire, it's still around today. It has a huge fan base. It's actually on Steam. People are crazy over that game. And the reason they're crazy is not the production values. Like I like to say that game when it launched was outdated the day it launched. Like it was (laughs) not the latest because I didn't have money. Like I didn't have access and I wasn't even that skilled a coder. But what it has is personality. It has a it's really funny, hilarious, bizarre game for business, and people just fell in love with it. So I felt like that that those games in the early days that we produced on our own budget, our own money, my savings, basically were more personal than anything I have ever done after that. Now the the venture companies have huge potential. But, you know, you it's always it's not just your company. You're taking in partners, you're bringing in co-founders, you're, you have a board of directors, investors. They are really focused on the bottom line. How do we grow this company? And it becomes a different beast. So you have to be prepared for that. I will tell you, 
a lot of people think, well, you know, I want to be a billionaire. But honestly, what do you really want? The question is, what do you really want to do? And what's the best way to do it? If you really want to create projects that are personal, that are passionate, that it's like doing an indie film, right? If you you could do a Hollywood blockbuster, right? And you're going to make another superhero, big budget film in the way that makes a lot of money. These are venture backed startups, or you could go off and do some artsy indie film or that, you know, it can still do really well, but it, it ends up being a completely different type of film. And absolutely. So these companies were very different experiences. And I will tell you, ultimately, I like doing bootstrapped. Like, I will tell you, I've gone back to that founder space. You know, I did my venture funded startups. When I started founder space, I had a lot of people wanting to invest. And I said, no, no, no. I'm doing founder space because I'm passionate about this. I want to work with entrepreneurs. I don't want to have to worry about scaling the business. I don't want to have to worry about doing uh, things just to make money. I think the entrepreneurs will make money and I will help them. So I funded the whole thing myself again. I went back to my bootstrap roots. Isn't that cool? Now, l- let me ask you, just to add your love, your, you went from Sega, which isn't a business focused gaming company. So, and you, you, you seem to have this tracking all the way through about entrepreneurship. Where did that love come from? Like to go from that kind of, you know, strategy gaming or, or, or fun gaming to say my first game, I want it to be about business. And then a series of that, what, what's that, what's that drive? Where did that come from for you? Well, it came out of my desire at the time to create a nonviolent game that actually teaches people something. So, but I wanted it to be fun. I wanted it to be really engaging and fun. I didn't want it to feel like an educational game. So it wasn't an educational game. Gazillionaire was a pure entertainment game, but I also thought all these people out there, especially kids playing all these games, they have so many shooters and all these other games. Why can't we have games that are just as fun that actually you know, show them like how to manage money, supply and demand, you know, what it is to get in a debt spiral, advertising, and create a really fun way to do that. So it came out of that passion, that passion to create that type of project. I was really, it was fun working at Sega in Japan. I was like the resident gaijin foreigner. And yeah. we were working on this big project at the time with Michael Jackson. He actually came in and we met him and, and it was really exciting. It was a big budget thing. But doing that personal project that just the way I wanted to have an impact on the world really uh, gave me something that I couldn't get anywhere else. And did, was there something, I mean, I don't want to get too psychological on it, but I'm always interested in people's drives behind this. Like, was there something in your youth or anything that drive to make a difference or to have an impact? Like, where does yes. that come from for you? Yeah. So for me, uh, money only goes so far. Like you, as long as you have enough money so that you're not destitute, like you have a nice uh, decent place to live, decent food. What are you going to do on this planet? What are you going to do with your life? I ask entrepreneurs at the end of the day, you know, you're not taking that money with you. You're not doing all that stuff that you think will make you happy. What really makes you happy? What really defines who you are, are your actions. Like what do you actually do in this world with the time you have? You can think of yourself in any way you want. You can imagine yourself doing all sorts of things, but what do you actually do? So that's what I ask entrepreneurs. And that's what I ask myself. Like, I believe we create our own meaning on this, in this, in our lives. Right. And the meaning and the world we live in is reflected by what, by the actions we take. We can't, I can't control what other people do. You know, I can't control if there's con men out there, if there's greedy people out there, if there's people out there destroying our planet. I can't control that. But what I can control is what I do. 
And so I asked myself, like in my life, if I'm going to have a meaningful life, what type of life, what type of actions could I be proud of? And if I can do that, if I can contribute even a little to this world, a little goodness out there, and, and, you know, right now, inspire entrepreneurs to do great things before, you know, build my own products that I'm really proud of. And I felt like, wow, these products have a really positive impact. Then I've done my part. I've done as much as I can. And if more opportunities come to do bigger and bigger things, great. If they don't, I will do what I can. That's awesome. It's interesting. I have a vision statement in my own business every day, and it says to inspire others through entrepreneurial leaders to become models of moral consistency and congruency and thereby inspire others to shape a society that works for all. That's exactly my philosophy, right? You yeah. know, we and what inspires others is not just what we say, but what we do. Like, how did we live our life? Like, people look at that. You know, your kids, first of all, they say your kids ignore everything you say, but they look very carefully at what you do. So yeah, if you want to raise kids that are truly ethical, moral, you know, ups, upstanding kids, your actions are everything. Like, and in life, Ultimately, your actions define everything. You know, people see through the other stuff, but when you're taking these actions that you don't have to take because you believe that you can make a difference in this world, that motivates and inspires people to do the same. Absolutely. So let's shift the founder space a little bit. I, I'm a mentor of two incubators up here in Canada. I do a lot, all the pitch training for a couple of them. Um, one of them is a feminist incubator, so it's very values focused. So I'm really, I'm really interested in this philosophy that you have. How does that how does it pragmatically manifest in the way you run the incubator for entrepreneurs, especially young entrepreneurs are coming, I got a great idea, I want to make a lot of money. And you've got this philosophy about, you know, what do you really want to do in the world? And what do you want your life to be about? How does that, how does that find its way into the, into the processes? I think, well, in a lot of levels, because entrepreneurs have to make very tough decisions. Now, there are different types. There's being a social entrepreneur, you can go everything from doing a nonprofit to a, a you know a for profit to somewhere in between but honestly uh doing a for profit social entrepreneurship is really powerful because the problem with nonprofit is nonprofit is really important but for tackling problems where there is no profit where you cannot uh, find any way to make a profit there has to be nonprofit but those businesses don't scale like they, oh, you just constantly have to fundraise to support them. The minute you stop fundraising, they stop, you know, being effective for profit. If you can get profit in there, literally you can take those profits and grow your impact on the world enormously. Like, so we're, you know, we're talking green energy now, green energy has to be for profit. It has to be able to compete for profit. Part of doing that also is where governments stop subsidizing fossil burning fuels right. because, you know, they're, you know, green energy can't compete if they're subsidizing these old fuels because of lobbyists and things like that. You have to have a fair playing field. But and then it's the a real market solution to an, an energy demand problem. Exactly. But I honestly believe the biggest impacts you can have on the world, you can have the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is great, but that's based on money he made for profit, right? So he made Microsoft and then Bill Gates took and Melinda Gates took that money and they put it into all these great nonprofits. But on the other hand, if you can make your business so that it really uh, solves problems in the world that need to be solved, nothing is better than that because yes. that business can fuel itself. So when I'm with entrepreneurs, I'm like, how can we make your business have a greater positive impact? You know, honestly, 
even a business that's for profit, as long as you act ethically and you provide a good product or service to people, it doesn't have to be like, you know, we're solving world hunger, we're we're stopping pollution. Though it doesn't have to be that. You can run a great business that provides value to people, uh, just and make money and 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 uh, and provide people, you know, employees' lives. And you can make that company really good because the company can be greener, the company can promote all these values, you know, equality amongst the people, you know, treating your employees well, giving them health benefits and other benefits. You can be a great for-profit company without solving one of the world's big problems. I'm so, I'm so glad you said that. And that's actually one of the focuses that I'm trying to do with this, with this podcast actually is spotlight different. I've got a client, his main mission to making the world a better place is to just create an environment where people can grow for his employees. Yeah. You know, it's, and it's not, the business itself is not inherently, you know, like if you're, if you're exercise, but Right. If you're running, you know, you're creating a new accounting software to make accounting easier. You know, that's not going to save the world, but it definitely saves people a lot of time. And if you create a and and makes, you know, businesses, um, businesses function more smoothly and everything, you know, this accounting software is valuable in the world. Um, But if you can layer on top of that other things like treating your employees really well, making it a place where they can really contribute and, and and reach their full potential. That in itself is a great accomplishment. And a lot of companies just ignore that because they're so right. focused on the bottom line. Now, there's. do you ever find, I've observed this a couple of times, this, this is maybe controversial, I don't know, um, that sometimes when people are mission-driven, they, that can be a justification for doing things that are not necessarily so great. It's sort of like I can skate on the edges over here because I'm doing this thing so well. People mask it. They use uh, they they call we call it greenwashing. Yep. Basically, they say, "Oh, we are going to be so environmentally friendly. We are going to cut emissions or do whatever you know, change our packaging of our products." But on the other hand, they're doing all these things that are really not benefiting society and sometimes very destructive. And but they're using it for PR, and that's a real problem. They're mm-hmm. using it also for PR, not just for the the public, the consumers out there, but also for their employees to to kind of trick their employees. But Ultimately, people will see through that. They yep. do see through that. But what it does is it muddies the water. What it, it, the real problem is, you know, people will see through that when a company does it. But what they're doing is they're, in a way, hurting all the companies that are really dedicated right. to doing good things by, by abusing uh, that privilege they have of actually doing something for the world. So Although there's some, sometimes what I was getting is the people who it's not, it's not false. Like they do have, the, they are mission driven in one sense. So they'll be like, yes, we are authentically doing green, but you know what? Our margins aren't great. So we're going to have really crappy labor standards. Well, that is a, a decision so many entrepreneurs are are face and they're pressured into because mm-hmm. honestly, you know, it's a cutthroat world out there and they look, you know, and you can rationalize almost anything. You look at yeah. your competitors, they're paying far less for their labor. They're undercutting you in price. You're losing market share. Do you, what do you do? Like, do you, the, the problem is the world is not black and white. It is simply right. not black and white. And all of us are faced with these really hard decisions. You know, I'm faced with these decisions. You're faced with these decisions in every part of our life. We want to do, even those of us who are really committed to doing the right thing often uh, make compromises. And, you know, 
who doesn't, unless you're a zealot, like a true zealot, you would never make a compromise. But most people in the world are not, you know, are, are not that dogmatic. They will, we all compromise. And the question is, what does that compromise mean? How far do you go in those compromises? Does it really, uh, does it, you know, ask yourself is in, when I make these compromises, it, it, am I compromising my integrity? Not just right. like this thing, but if you feel you are really compromising your integrity, you are crossing the line. And so with found, founder space now, like, so how big is it? How many, how many folks are you helping now? Oh, so we work with literally hundreds of entrepreneurs every year around the world. So we have our own incubator, uh, which, you know, basically grew up in San Francisco. We expanded all around, all over the world. So like in China, we have a lot of incubators. So we have them in major cities like Nanjing, Xi'an, Shenzhen. When you say we have, are they, are are you partnered with them or do you wholly own them? So in, in, in different overseas, we have a very interesting model. So uh, we always have local partners when we run our overseas incubators because it's we're not local. We can't understand those markets. All we can do is basically bring our values, our ideas, our methodologies on and then have them kind of run the day to day operations. So like in China, those are branded founder space. But mm-hmm. we have our instructors and our teaching methods and our on, you know our online programs and our videos all used within those. But the day-to-day, the hiring, the firing, following all the government regulations, which honestly I don't understand because we work not just in China, we work in South Korea, we work in Taiwan, we work in Europe. It's really, really complex. So our main thing is do what we do best. And what we do best are these fundamental teachings. I outline them like in my book, Surviving a Startup. Like we teach entrepreneurs how to be great entrepreneurs. And then we also layer on top of that our values. And and to reach these entrepreneurs, because they're going to be very influential no matter which country they're in, in defining the future, they're, they're going to be very powerful in this. And they are shaping our future. So we want to engage with them all around the world. So for people who aren't listening, I think you and I, because we're both involved in incubators, know what it is. But for somebody not listening, what, what is an incubator or an accelerator? What does it actually do? So if you go to uh, 10 different countries, you might get 10 different definitions. <laughs> but uh, as you know, people define it in different ways in different countries. But generally, in the U.S., an incubator is uh, uh, attracts and supports earlier stage entrepreneurs. So entrepreneurs, either they just have an idea, some incubators actually form the teams themselves and fund them. Other incubators just take in earlier stage entrepreneurs and really help them grow. And an accelerator is what it says. It takes an existing team, usually with a product in development or already launched and accelerates their growth. And we do both. We do more on our intensive programs where we really invest time and money. We do more acceleration than incubation. In our educational programs, we're really just helping people. You know, we have lots of videos on our website and we run online mm-hmm. courses and programs. That's more for earlier stage entrepreneurs who are, you know, may just have an idea, may just try, be trying to figure it out, taking those first steps. So we focus on both, but we do it in different ways. And is the business model that they pay to participate or are you investing? Like, is it, is it more an equity play? Like how does, how does, what's the business relationship between you and the participating companies? So we started over a decade ago and we have uh, evolved on our business models uh, over time because at first we are Silicon Valley based. Most of our early members were U S companies based in or around Silicon Valley. 
and we, or they just moved there and we were nurturing and growing them. Then we saw an opportunity to go overseas because Silicon Valley over 10 years ago, we were early on and everybody was flooding in from all over the world. And really people don't realize this, but over half the entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley are from overseas mm-hmm. and, and they have become very successful in Silicon Valley. We became their landing spot. Like if they wanted to enter Silicon Valley, they came to founder space. And then, uh, countries overseas, different governments like South Korea, we formed a really close relationship with. They're like, you know, it's expensive to send 10 entrepreneurs over here. Could you come to South Korea and run these courses there? So we started to do that. Um, And that is how our relationships formed all over the world. So we work with, you know, we don't have our own incubators in most countries. We work with partner incubators. We work with governments. And those governments, to answer your question specifically, a lot of them have budgets for their entrepreneurs. Mm. So they will either pay our instructors to go over and give courses, they will pay for an online program, or they will pay for their entrepreneurs to come to us. In that case, we take no equity, right? None. Because the government is paying, we are providing a service. In other cases where we invest in a startup, where we uh, select them and they come into our specific program, in that case, we do take an equity stake. So we run different types of programs for different types of entrepreneurs coming from different areas. Nice. And do you have do you have criteria or what what kind of criteria do you use to select entrepreneurs? Like your, your brand is well known enough. I imagine there would be a lot of people who want to get in. So what do you use for, as your screening criteria? Absolutely. So we get too many applications for our really selective programs. So the programs where we're investing our time, money, resources, that we take a small, tiny percentage of the people apply. The ones that are more general programs, we'll do it online with lots of users. Those are either free or you know very low cost. They're, they're, most of them are even free. So when we are doing um, our very selective programs, we have several criteria. So number one, we look at the team really closely. And I will tell you, you cannot build a billion dollar company by yourself. So if you're an entrepreneur and you think you could do it, you ne- nobody's ever done it in the history. I want, I want to pause here for anybody who's listening. This this next piece is super important. But like I love that you started with team and if the criteria, you know, because Steve knows so much about this, I just think there's a huge amount of wisdom coming in what people who evaluate businesses look at. And so this is this is I'm really looking forward to what you got to say. So to us, the CEO is the most important person because they're going to define the direction and future of the company, the culture, everything. That CEO, how do we judge the person at an early stage before they have a lot of traction? How do we know if they're successful? Well, we know in large part by who they surrounded themselves with. Great CEOs have to be great leaders and they needed to attract not B players, not C players. They need to attract A plus players. Like really, because Honestly, I've seen it so many times where a, where a startup has a brilliant idea, they start executing on it, but they don't have a great team and they fumble the ball. Somebody else will invariably pick up that ball, run with it and be the winner, not them. So if they don't have the team, even if they have the best idea in the world, it's not worth <laughs> betting on that team. You're, you're wasting your time and money. So we look at the entire team. You know, Did they get amazing people who could have been earning like you know, six figures at Google or Microsoft, did they get these people to commit to their company? How did they do it? How did that CEO? People say it's impossible, but it's not because I see it all the time. People with no money attract great talent because they have a vision. They have that ability to lead. Uh, They have 
Uh, they have shared values usually with their team. They're not joining just for the money. That's why they're leaving these great jobs to join them. We want to see that. Number two, again, the idea isn't at the most important thing. People think, oh, I have to have this epiphany, this great idea. I'm telling you, it doesn't really matter. Like I've seen so many companies, great companies out there who they start with one idea and they wind up with another. In fact, that's more common than not. Like mm. Google started off, Larry Page and Th Sergey Brin thought they were doing a nonprofit. They thought they were making a tool for academics to find research papers online. Like that was Google. It was only later they figured out it would be the most profitable co company in history, ironically, is what they formed. You know, Slack was a game. And then they pivoted to this internal messaging system yeah. their engineers were using. All these companies... YouTube was a video dating site. So these company after company, they started in one direction, they changed to another. So the idea isn't that important. What's important is the direction. Way, you know, do you see an opportunity to change things in an industry, either through process, design innovation, technological innovation, business model innovation? Are you prepared to really innovate in a certain sector? Can you get people behind you that are passionate about doing that? So for example, if I'm looking at a startup and they want to change the fishing industry because there's a lot of bycatch, you know, we're destroying, we're, you know, depleting our stocks of fish in the ocean where it's really, really horrible. We're polluting the ocean. You know, how do you change this industry that is entrenched? Well, you're not going to do it because you have a brilliant idea on how to make fishing more sustainable if they don't buy in. Like if the fishing industry doesn't buy in, it doesn't matter if it's the best idea in the world, the best product in the world, if they're not going to buy it. So you need to get in, in, embed yourself in that industry and figure out where their mindset is. How can you make it a win-win? Accomplish the goals you want, but also create value for the partners, the ultimate customers who are going to be using and buying your products or services. That is what we look at. And I will tell you, great entrepreneurs out there really often don't have any great ideas at the beginning. What, but what they are incredibly good at is hunting for pockets of pent-up demand. Like mm -hmm. I, I call them demand hunters. Like if you're an entrepreneur out there, throw out the ideas, pick an area you're passionate about, like sustainable fishing or remaking the, the service food service industry, whatever it is. I don't care if you are passionate about this, then go into the world and be with these people, figure out what's driving them crazy. What are their problems? Can you solve these problems? Can you make better products for them to do things more efficiently, better for the environment and, and, and really add value to them? These pockets of demand are beautiful because they are always changing. The world is changing. Right. New, new technology is emerging, allowing us to do things in new and better ways and different ways. You know, markets are shifting all the time. Trends are changing. You, new pockets of demand emerge. And then when an entrepreneur's job isn't really to invent technology, you don't have time for that. Like that take, can take years and years and years. You're, you want to take technology that exists and then apply it in a new way to unleash this demand. And that demand is what powers your company to grow. So when we see entrepreneurs with a great team, I've identified like this huge pent up pocket of demand. We know they can build that product and really tap into that and be a winner. That is what we're looking for. There's a piece in what you said. I've always thought that about Branson from, from Virgin, that his genius, uh, I haven't seen it written about too much like this, but it's, his genius seems to be, it doesn't have to be new technologies, new industries, or actually dated industries, but he looks for where customer service quality sucks. Oh, yeah. Right? And then just goes in and says, I'm going to provide people better experiences than they've ever had in that antiquated industry. And kaboom, he then just 
you know, becomes dominant. Exactly. And when you have new technology, it gives you an edge because yes. that allows you to do something not incrementally better. You never win by being incrementally better, but exponentially better. Like you can take this technology and totally redo, make it so much more efficient, make it so much more powerful, you know, than the previous way people were doing it. Or you can take this technology and actually create new value, like to allow people to do something they just previously weren't able to do. Right. right. Now, because of your orientation about making the world a better place, what, what role do the, the values of the founders or the team members have in your selection criteria? So a, a lot. So if I'm going to invest my time, you know, I'm doing founder space on my own dime. Yeah, I'm not bringing in, I didn't bring in a lot of venture funding. So it's really, I can pick the companies we work with. And if I'm going to pick the companies we work with, I want, comp I want founders that I can believe in that I can believe they're doing something. So I don't have like a litmus test for, for entrepreneurs, but you can tell like right away when you speak to anybody, uh, what their, what, you know, what their mindset is, what they really want to get out of it. If they just want to a get rich quick scheme, like that's what they're after. I'm right. not interested like that. I'll just pass on that. I've seen so many people and those people usually don't even succeed anyway. You know, I'm really looking for people who want to create an impact in their industry. It can be any industry, uh, but they have a way and they see a way that, that they can actually really make a difference. And they're very creative. This is another thing I want. They're very curious. They're challenging orthodoxies. They're always experimenting and trying new things. These are the people I love to work with. And so with all that experience, then you package it up in a book. Uh, and the name of the book again is? Surviving a Startup. Surviving so a Startup. So with all the experience you've had, let's, you know, we, we could probably go on for hours about this, but what are your, what are your kind of, there's so many things I'd like to know about this, but one of them is like, what is an identifiable characteristic common to successful entrepreneurs? I, I never think there's only just one because I see different entrepreneurs with many, but are there any through lines that you see among the most successful? So really successful entrepreneurs have three main characteristics that I like. One was leadership, I said. Two is that they're dogged. They stick with it. They, mm -hmm. They'll hit their head against the wall a hundred times and they're back for 101. Like, and they, but they can't just hit their head against the wall. They try different things. So every time they hit their head against the wall, they're trying a different way to get through that wall. They're like going under it. They're going over it. They're trying to go around it. They're trying to blow it up. They're doing something different each time. So they're the type of people who don't give up, but they're always, they're, they're flexible. They are, they are creative in the sense that they will try every different possible permutation to get around the obstacles they face. And then number three, I really like entrepreneurs who go deep, like entrepreneurs who don't stop at the service level. I don't think you can create a great, really disruptive new business by stopping where everybody else does. You are, yes. because there's, it's too much competition. You have to be committed to going further. And that takes discipline. That takes uh, curiosity again to actually ask the questions, where could we go? What could we do with this? How could we do it differently? Constantly, these things really matter. And then on top, those are successful entrepreneurs and you could be successful and then you can do good or not good. But those like you just asked for successful, those are like the key traits I see. And where does, I've always been interested in this as a, as, as a, quality of entrepreneurs where does humility play like people often hear about confidence but i've often thought like to, to be willing to say that approach i took isn't going to be the right one i got to find another one 
you've got to have either humility or some form of non-attachment, right? Yes. And it's hard to say great entrepreneurs are all humble because we right. look at Elon Musk, we look at Steve Jobs, we look at you know, Bill Gates. These people weren't necessarily humble. They thought they were the, the best thing ever. They think right. they are the best thing ever. You, we uh, So being humble isn't really one, but what you do, did say was that being humble in respect to, I don't have all the answers. Right. So, so these people have huge egos. That's not going to go away. A lot of times that's what drives them, but they all, they are smart enough to realize they don't know everything. And I so guess that's we, the thing I mean by humility is that, that willingness to say, this is where I rock, but that's an area I don't know. And I'm yes, okay. I don't know. And I'm going to ask a gazillion questions and get the people on board who do. Those are the entrepreneurs that succeed. So they are so intensely curious. They so much want to solve this problem that they put their ego aside and they get the people on their team that can do what needs to be done. And they, uh, they get them motivated and inspired to really own that problem by, you know, th- the great entrepreneurs like Steve Jobs would always be grilling and, 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 you know, Elon Musk and stuff. They're grilling their employees. Like, can we do it better? How do we do it? They're not telling them what to do because they don't know, they don't have time, but they are grilling them on pushing them to go further in figuring these things out. And they're listening very carefully to what these people are saying. Actually, a business partner of mine, he actually had to present down in, uh, to Apple and Jobs actually walked into the meeting and everybody kind of freaked out and got afraid. And then he just he just interrupted the meeting and went, what's the strategy? And my, my right. partner sort of- Starting with a question, right? He didn't- yep. He didn't pretend he knew all the answers. These really great CEOs are constantly asking questions. Like I tell entrepreneurs, ask, don't tell. If you want great employees, don't tell them what to do. Ask them what to do. Like, how should we do this better? What should we do? What's your strategy? Where are you going with this? If you are always telling them what to do, then they're just robots. They're extensions right. of you. You're getting nothing out of them. If you are asking them what to do, boom, you're turning on their brains. You're turning. You're forcing them to innovate. You're forcing them to think. You're forcing them to take ownership. That's what these great, amazing entrepreneurs do. So in, in Founder, you've seen people come through. I'm sure you've got this selection criteria. You've had people come through and you think, oh, this person, this is going to be great. I'm really excited. And then it doesn't work. So what are the, are there any same kind of question? Are there through lines? You know, apart from just there wasn't a good product market fit or that kind of thing, but within the entrepreneur themselves, are there some commonalities of where that potential just didn't get realized? Yes, so often. So, so often people have, we all have biases. We all put blinders on. We want, too often than not, the entrepreneur falls in love with what they're doing and therefore filters out all the really relevant criticism that they're getting that would allow them to make a decision to change direction. And they, a lot of them are too stubborn. They stick with it for too long. So they can't basically run out of time and money and they, they Mm -hmm. just fail. The other thing is they are afraid. So they, they uh, entrepreneurs make a fundamental mistake of identifying their product success with who their own ego, their own success. If your product fails, you have not failed. You just tried something that didn't work. And the sooner you recognize that a product, you if you try to cover up a product failure because you're insecure, you can't admit, you don't want to be seen as a failure, then what you're doing is perpetuating something uh, that will never work. And you're sort of sealing your own fate to fail. So I say great entrepreneurs give up on products all the time. 
as soon as they get the data in there, the real, you know, empirical data, this thing isn't working. Customers aren't excited about this. Okay, what do we do next? They're not like, oh, we can't let this fail. We have to figure out, well, let's add another feature. Let's stick with it. Let's just give it another couple months, blah, blah, blah. That is the wrong thing. Why is it failing? Is it a reason you cannot change? If it's a reason you can change, change it and then really quickly, and then see if that actually solves it. If it's not a reason you can change, cut your losses, move on. It's not you. It doesn't reflect on your success. In fact, your success is to try a lot of different things. That's why I say, don't. another reason I say don't get locked into a single idea is it makes it so much easier to, to change. Like you go out there in the world and you're just dead set on this idea, but the world doesn't care. You're never going to get anywhere. Like you, you cannot I love to say you cannot manufacture demand. Like you can't make yes. somebody <laughs> demand something, but all the will, all the passion in the world, you know, if people believe that it just takes passion, you can't make people demand stuff just because you're passionate about it. Like they, they don't need it. They don't want it. They don't care. That's it. You need to realize that at the earliest point and then pivot. And so great entrepreneurs pivot all the time, pivot often and early. I just tell you that that is a, you, you have to do that. I think I think that's so brilliant that notion that fear of failures. I, I've actually heard some VCs say that they will actually look for entrepreneurs who've had failures. Any that have, they're actually wary of anybody comes in who hasn't had a failure. And yet entrepreneurs go, I can't go to a VC with a failure on my resume. And it's it's. What's your take on that? So what I you know we in reality, aunt, VCs don't love people who fail. Everybody loves people who succeed. So they may say that to you, but what they're saying is that what's more important to me is getting to know why that person failed and understanding if they actually walked away learning something, if they are going to do a better job next time, if they've had, if nobody's failed means they haven't tried a lot of stuff, because if you've tried enough stuff, you have failures on your record. Everybody does like, you know, most people cover them up, but everybody does. But the, what the VC wants to know is how did you think? How did you go through this process? What did you learn? What would you do differently next time? If they can see that thought process, a really intelligent, self-reflective thought process, then there's something really valuable there. Right. And so a little bit more about the book. So what was your, what was your impulse for writing it? And what do you hope to, what do you kind of hope to achieve with it? Well, I've been doing this for many decades, as you can see, and I wanted to give entrepreneurs everything that I have learned, both in my own experience, doing my own startups, as well as from all these entrepreneurs I coach and mentor and work with, they're all facing these problems. And the fact is the majority of startups fail. So I wrote, surviving a startup means in order to survive, you don't want to make all these mistakes that other people are already making. You can actually... I believe great entrepreneurs also another trait. They're always educating themselves. They're always learning. So I wish I, it was the book I wish I had when I started out. And it is basically a distillation. It's not a book with like one idea repeated 30 times. There are like 300 critical ideas in this book. Like everything from like, how do you raise money? How do you talk to VCs? How do you go out there and do guerrilla marketing? You name it. It's all these pieces of wisdom that I have accumulated. And, and really inside knowledge and the paths that didn't work and the paths that did work, I put them all into that. So is, is it is it more like a how-to or is it anecdotal? Is it a combination? Do you have stories? Well, there's some great stories and it's just chock full of what I consider really useful information, like really useful. Like 
I could talk forever, like I'm business models. Like what is a great business model? You know, what are the models that build these huge unicorns and what are the models you should be avoiding? You know, how, how do you negotiate a deal when you're faced, when you're like, I've been there, I've been totally out of money negotiating with VCs. How do you get them to close? Like without seeming totally desperate, you know, these right. really practical things that people like that people want to know, then I go into depth on them. And is it, is it, I can sort of zero in on any chapter based on where I'm at? Yeah. 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 So it's very much uh, broken down. So you could just read the parts you want and skip the ones you don't, if you feel like you're a master in certain areas. <laughs> that's, fa that's fantastic. Now, so is, is there any, like, if you could say, here's one or two stories that everyone should know from that book, what would they be? Oh, there are so many, but um, I can tell you. Uh, like the most universal application kind of idea. So universal application, I can tell you one about, uh, the, you know, there's this guy who started this ice cream that's uh, healthier ice cream, less sugar called Halo Top. And he is actually a great example of an entrepreneur who broke almost every rule I give them. So like I give I love, you all I love these, these stories, <laughs> I give you all these rules in the book of what you should do. And then he goes and breaks them all and is successful. Why did I tell his story? Because you can break all the rules and still succeed. And, um, but he did one thing really right. Um, he was so passionate about his product. Like I, the, the rules I tell people, one of the fundamental rules is don't borrow money from family and friends. If you want to keep your family and friends, don't, don't take their money because they don't know what they're investing in. When they invest in you and your crazy startup idea, they don't know the odds. They would be better off going to Vegas, but you're taking their money. Really try to get your money from people who know what they're doing, professional investment, crowdsourcing, people out there, people you don't have to have Thanksgiving with for the rest of your life and have them remember how you lost their money. So, uh, but he did that. He took money from family and friends. I also say, don't take money from loan sharks at extremely crazy interest rates. He did that. He took money from loan sharks. <laughs> but at the end of the day, what he, the reason he did all these things is because he spent forever making that ice cream and, and trying it over and over on himself and all his friends, right? So he knew he was onto something different. He knew he was onto something. He really, really, he was the customer, right? You have to know the customer. And he was the customer for that product. He just went so deep on that product that he would not give up because he knew people would buy it. That's awesome. So if you know that, if like, you know, absolutely that your customer that you there's a certain segment of people it doesn't have to be everybody but then you just go nuts over your product when it gets out there you can break these rules it's again it's a good example of that resilience too right that sort of oh yeah he was going like on the, but honestly he could have lost his family and friends money so easily he came like the story's great and i go through the whole story but he came close to dying so many times <laughs> so what's what's next for founder space so next for founder space is you know, now that the world is hopefully opening back up with no more variants, we're hoping that these variants go away. Um, you know, I want to get back to traveling. So I just traveled across the country, actually. I got my vaccine, traveled across the entire United States from the West Coast to the East Coast. Now I'm back on the West Coast. I just arrived. And um, I can't wait to go abroad, to meet all our partners, to meet the entrepreneurs, to do that. I just want to keep, honestly, this is something I love. I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. I have no greater ambition than to continue what I'm doing and actually meet even more amazing entrepreneurs who have really big dreams, want to really make an impact. 
And so you just touched on, you know, with the pandemic, no, but no one's good. No one knows what's going to happen yet. You know, hopefully the new variants do get under control, but what's been, what's been your experience with either the VC crowd or the entrepreneurial crowd? Like some people were, oh my goodness, it's, you know, a scary time to start businesses. Others exploded. I've almost all my clients have been having their best years ever. Um, what's your take on, on, on the investment side, people's hunger for looking for new entrepreneurial opportunities and for just the opportunity for change coming out of something like a pandemic. Honestly, the pandemic has hurt some entrepreneurs really badly, but it also fueled a lot. Everybody, do, you know, working in this digital space, you know, e-commerce space, all of this, they just got a huge tailwind, like just pushing them along. And the venture money, like in Silicon Valley, has never been it's a torrent of money now it has never been flowing like this entrepreneurs are getting insane valuations like really sky high so but just because this is happening doesn't mean it's going to be easy for you like i'm talking to you the entrepreneur out there yes. it's sort of like an all or nothing like either if your business gets traction if it if 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 its sales are going if the customers are super happy if if you're getting that response no problem raising money. Like if you don't need the money, the money is going to flood you. <laughs> like if you have a great business, the money is just going to, you can't, you, you'll be approached by so many people. It, but before you get there, it's still extremely hard to raise money. So don't have any illusions. Like people are like, if you don't have the proof that investors need to see early on, uh, you're going to have a hard time raising that initial angel round. And don't expect it to be easy. Don't fool yourself. So, and what does that what does that proof look like? The the proof uh, can take many different forms. The best proof is literally cash in the door. Like people are signing contracts, and you have a very scalable business model. So, very uh, scalable meaning you can replicate it over and over again, like really easily. So you can go out there, and and the profit margins are there. You can, it also businesses with recurring revenue investors love that. Like, give me a model that's predictable. Like these cu customers are coming in and they're paying and I can compute their lifetime value. How much will this customer give me over the lifetime? I can see your cost of customer acquisition. If you're making a big profit at the end of the day, then you the venture money will flow. If you have like one-time sales, things like that, where you get a customer, they buy and you never see them again, really tough business, like especially for small purchase items, you know, for if it's not a car or something big like that. Right. So, so this, um, so this is what, uh, this is the market out there right now for startups. And honestly, if you, the proof you have is at an early stage, a lot of time you don't have a lot of sales. You don't have a lot of user traction, people spending time in your app and doing things. So what do you have? Well, you have to go out there and you can do a, a crowdfunding campaign. That's great proof for certain businesses with the right business model. You can do, you could, if you're B2B or enterprise, really easy. Get in front of your customer, talk to them, get a video camera, record their reaction. Are they like, oh yeah, that's pretty nice to have. If they say that, you're dead. Like nobody buys <laughs> nice to have products. If they say, oh my God, I need that yesterday. How can I get it? How can I get on board? Can I be a beta tester? What can I do? Even if you don't have a product, if you get a lot of people saying that, that's proof that you've hit that pocket of demand I talked about. You know, what can you, uh, what do you know about your customer uh, that is, that will sh demonstrate when you show it to investors that these people are absolutely nuts about what you have? That's the proof they want to see. So just, I got three questions at a personal level for you, but just one sort of philosophical question, um, which is around, 
you know, I, I know, I know where you're coming from a similar place to me, but when you hear the criticisms, like some people will say, you know, the system that created the problems can't be the system to solve the problems, um, you know, at a, at a kind of philosophical level, capitalism as a driver for addressing social changes that it is itself, you know, fostered, how do, how do entrepreneurs, there's actually two parts of this. One, one is the philosophical, how do entrepreneurs sort of balance that within themselves, the profit motive versus the make an impact motive. And the second one is, are, are you seeing investors tempering the uh, profit maximization with profit optimization, but wanting to see positive impacts as well? It's really hard. Those are great philosophical questions. You know, can we solve the problems of capitalism with capitalism? Well, capitalism can solve a lot of problems in the world, period. But we also know uh, capitalism and the, and the corporate structures we have set up around the world tend to incentivize people to get profits at all cost. Now, this is the problem. Can individuals change this? Well, within your own domain, your own company, you do have some power. But the bigger you get, the more investors you get, you know, if you go public, the, you, you will be removed from that position if you are not really focused on the bottom line. And that is a systemic problem. You know, how do you change these? So some of these problems cannot be addressed by entrepreneurs alone. They have to be ad addressed at a higher level, a social level, a government level with regulations and policies. And individual entrepreneurs can't really fix all the problems in capitalism. They can't make every company, you know, behave morally, ethically. We just know that. It's just a fact. Um, so your question is, do I go into politics or do I go into business? Um, if you go into politics, you can definitely start to address some of these. Um, is there a, an easy solution even there? No, there's no, the world is a messy place and there's no clear cut solutions because you don't want to, you don't want to put in place policies that curb people's creativity, ingenuity, entrepreneurialism, business, growth, economy, that wouldn't be good. But at the same time, we do want businesses to act more, uh, more responsibly a more uh, for social impact, not just take advantage of every loophole, exploit existing situations to, to maximize their profits, like polluting, like literally all the companies that are polluting are literally shoving the bill onto the rest of us, like right. because they're just dumping whatever they want into the air, the ocean, you know, our rivers, and we're all going to have to suffer the consequences, you know, health-wise, and ultimately, if we want to clean it up monetarily, they're just deferring their costs. We have to stop those things, right? Can technology intervene and make these businesses cleaner? It's a combination of all sorts of things. You know, the, the media spotlight has to be on them. They have to have public pressure. They have to, politicians respond to the public pressure. Then you have to have all um, the, the technologies to, the, for them to actually implement and use. We, uh, all of these things, it's like a very complex web, right? So right. you're asking me really tough questions. What I will say is lead by example. In your company, show other entrepreneurs that you can build a great, sustainable uh, company that cares about its employees, cares about its customers, cares about the community. You can build this and be profitable. 
Can you do that? That should be your goal. If you can do that and lead by example and show that you can become highly profitable doing this, you don't have to resort to these other things. In fact, it can benefit you by people, you know, having trust in you, people knowing you, people, you know, wanting to work with you. These, uh, if you can show that, you will get other entrepreneurs at to follow suit. That is what you can do. And that's why I love what what you do and what I try to do in my business too. Because I, just, I I grew up I grew up in Edmonton during the heyday of the Edmonton Oilers when Wayne Gretzky was there. Now you're gonna look like Steph Curry in basketball. I would say like the best don't cheat, right? When yes. you are really really skilled at what you do, you don't have to compromise the values. So getting into something like Founder Space where you have people mentoring you and teaching you and guiding you and that kind of thing makes it less likely that you ever have to engage in that kind of values compromise. Yeah. I told my kids the same thing, you know, in school, I was like, there's no reason to cheat. Like you're not gaining anything. Like, what are you proving? Right. If you, if you, you, you know, develop the skills so that you can win and then you can be proud of yourself. Like you actually did it cheating. You'll know you always cheated. You'll never get that satisfaction. Don't cheat in your business either. Well said. Now for you, just uh, last three questions. I asked this of, of all the guests now, which is just first question is like, for yourself, what is your personal, what is your top quality that's helped you succeed? Oh, my top quality, I think, is my ability to communicate and my passion for what I do. So I can take very complex ideas and distill them down into things that people can understand and relate to, and then I can convey them in a way that motivates them to do so. That's probably my best quality. That's been pretty clear in this conversation. <laughs> uh, so. Second, what what quality have you had to struggle the most to overcome with or to overcome in order to achieve the success? So like all entrepreneurs, I want to do a lot. And so I have to always balance my ambition and my goals to just get something done with the right way to do it. Like check yourself. Like, is this the, is this the way I, am I taking a shortcut? Is this the way I really should be doing it? Am I following some opportunity for the right reasons? I have to question myself just like all of us do. And last question is, for what do you want to be remembered? I would like to be remembered for somebody who really helped give birth to companies that go out there and really make an environment that is positive. So if I can do that, if uh, like you, if I can nurture, help support, and help grow the next generation of entrepreneurs, because I had my shot and now it's the next generation and they're inheriting all the problems we've created, but they are also the future to solve these. If I can help them do that even a little, that would be my legacy. That is an awesome legacy. Listen, thank you. You've shared so much, so many great insights. This is, this is an episode I think people need to listen to three times. Like there was a, there was brilliance in here. And I, Thank you for your generosity in coming on here and sharing that with us. I've really, really enjoyed it. Any last thoughts from you before we sign off? No, Warren, I think you're doing fantastic work. I am. I want to support you. I think I'm, I'm your fan. That's all I want to say. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hi, it's Warren Cogman here. Thank you so much for listening to the Business That Matters Spotlight. If you're a successful, values-driven entrepreneur who makes a difference while making a profit and you'd like to be on this program, please visit warrencoglin.com slash podcast slash apply. That's warren, C-O-U-G-H-L-I-N dot com slash podcast slash apply. 
If you got something out of this interview, would you do us a favor and share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag Business That Matters Spotlight. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We're regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to our website, warrencoglin.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, facebook.com slash a business that matters, and Instagram at warren.coglin. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.